Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14, and we'll read the account that God has preserved for us through His Holy Spirit and through the pen of Luke. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ our for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, will you give us understanding of this glory that has come upon the earth in the person of Christ? Father, will you help us understand the words of the angels that we would be humbled? Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this week, uh, we're going to look at the glorious rescue, uh, how one can be turned from a glory thief into a glory giver. Next week, uh, next Sunday morning, we'll look at the glorious Christ from Isaiah 9. We'll look at his attributes, the way Isaiah prophesied uh, this uh, son that would be born who would be Savior. We're going we're gonna to look at all the prophet tells us about Christ. We're going to just look at Christ in His glory. And then uh, uh, next Sunday evening, uh, we're going to consider the glorious singing, which began on that night and has never ended since that night. And we're told in Revelation, will continue forever. And then what are we going to do next Sunday night? We're going to sing and sing and sing and sing and sing the 
songs of praise to the Lord for giving us Christ. I want to begin by uh, reading some verses to the song, O Holy Night, uh, which just really hit me this year as I heard this. It just, I felt the weight of the truthfulness of these words. Listen how it starts. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. This is the line that stuck out to me. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Long lay the earth in sin and error pining. Had to look up what pining means. It means physically self-destructing and mentally, which the Webster Dictionary meant to say spiritually, self-destructing, right? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt His worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine. Such poetic words that capture the misery the world finds itself in. And the hopelessness the world finds itself in until Christ was born. So the sermon's going to be pretty simple. The charge of the sermon is this. Give glory to God alone. Give glory to God alone for Christ was born for this. We're going to unpack that. And so three things. We're going to ask you to hear, repent, and rejoice. All right? To hear the angels' voices. What are they saying to us? I'm going to ask you to repent of all self-glory and rejoice in the peace Christ brings. Let us hear the angels' voices. All right? Let me just point out the theme of glory we're going to look at this week and next week. Let me show it to you in the text. Look at verse 8. In the same region, this is of Luke 2, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That's glory showing up on earth. Which brings about this. They were filled with great fear, which they should be. Any sinner who finds themselves with the glory of God shining around them finds themselves totally exposed and in trouble. But the angels 
But the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not. To which we would say, how can you not fear? It's right to fear if the glory of the Lord is there. Well, here's why he says it. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that'll be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you're going to be in the presence of the glory of God without fear, then you must know the Savior. That's the only way we can make sense. Who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Listen to what the angels are saying. Glory to God in the highest. Then there can be peace on earth among men who are found in that Savior. But if it's glory to man on earth, there will be no peace on earth. The angels are directing us both to our problem and to the Savior. You know, what does the 1689 Baptist Catechism teach? Question number one. Who is the first and best of beings? Well, the angels knew. They said, glory to God in the highest. The answer in the catechism is, God is the first and best of beings. Question number two in the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So you're made for. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus came to save us not only from the penalty of sin, it's right for us to emphasize that. He came to swallow up the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin, pay the penalty of sin. But He also came to save us from the power of sin, which we're going to focus on this morning. So when you think of why did Jesus come? We can give many answers. But the one we're going to focus in on this morning is how Christ comes to save us from ourselves. Yes, from the wrath of God. But He doesn't merely do that. He came to save us from ourselves. So get this. At the heart of every sin is these three things. Almost everyone agrees with this. 
theologically. Pride? Find a sin you commit that doesn't have pride at its base. Selfishness and unbelief. Every sin you've ever committed has those three satanic attributes to it. Pride, selfishness, unbelief. Did Christ merely only come to save us for the penalty of sin? Or is there any way we can be saved from the power of sin which has these attributes in every sin in our life? When sin takes on these three attributes, what I would consider satanic attributes, it does what it always does. It leads us to become glory thieves. Glory thieves. You might say, well, where did you come up with that? Well, that wasn't original to me. Paul Tripp's uh, uh, Come Let Us Adore Him Advent devotional. December 9th, subtitle here, Jesus left His lofty place to rescue glory thieves who insert themselves into His place and make it all about them. So one of the purposes for Christ coming to this earth is to rescue us from being glory thieves. Thieves. Let me just read a, uh, a couple paragraphs here. Here's what Tripp says. You see, our problem is not just that we live in a broken world and that its brokenness enters our doors. Beneath that reality is a much deeper problem. We have a glory problem. We, we have preferred living for ourselves over living for something or someone bigger than ourselves. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, in our friendships, in the church, we've made life all about us. We've tended to reduce the active field of our concern down to the tiny confines of our wants, our needs, our plans, our satisfaction, our happiness. It's not wrong to want some control or to want to be right or to like beautiful possessions or be surrounded by a community of love. But it's wrong and spiritually dangerous for those things to rule your heart. Let me give you an example, he goes on to say. By asking a rather intrusive question, how much of your anger in the last two months had anything whatsoever to do with God's call, His kingdom, and His glory? You see, if you're honest, we're not ang- or if we're honest, we're not angry because the people around us are breaking God's law. We're angry because they're breaking our law. They get in the way of what we want and what we think we need. Perhaps at a street level, We're not living for the glory of God at all. Perhaps in ways we're not conscious of, we have shrunk our life down to the size 
of our own glory. Maybe it really is true that somehow, some way, sin makes us all glory thieves. We steal for ourselves what belongs to God. We put ourselves in God's place. Perhaps life really is a one big unending glory battle. It's because we would never ever win this battle on our own that Jesus came. We could never rescue ourselves from a problem so ugly. So hear the angels' voices. Glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth. (laughs) When man glories in God because Christ has changed his heart, Christ has saved him, peace can begin to be a reality on earth. The sinner can be reconciled to God and be reconciled to one another. All right? So secondly, so first hear the angels' voices. Secondly, repent of all self-glory. Here's my purpose. Here's what I set out to do uh, on this point. To make you absolutely loathe your self-glory. You don't know how nasty it is. I don't know how nasty it is. But the Word of God helps us, gives us words to help us understand. You won't repent over something you don't abhor. And so that's the goal here. So question number 21 in the Baptist Catechism says this, into what a state did the fall bring mankind? Into what a state did the fall bring mankind? Answer, the fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. Misery. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Physical and spiritual self-destruction. How bad is it to seek glory for yourself? How bad is it if I seek glory for myself? Let's put it this way. Is there anything worse than looking into a mirror with perfect lighting? Have you ever been in this situation? You look into the mirror. The light is so perfect. Maybe there's even one of those magnified mirrors like in a hotel or something. Do you really want to look at yourself? Magnified, close up, perfect light. All the blemishes showing. I don't know of anyone that just says, yes, this is what I want. This is what I love. How much worse would be looking into a mirror of your own heart 
with God's perfect holy light shining in, exposing every crevice. Paul did this. Paul considered himself. This was his conclusion. Romans 7.24 What a wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what Paul said when he took an honest look in after spending his whole life seeking glory for himself, becoming a Hebrew of the Hebrews and Pharisee among the Pharisees. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You know his answer, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus, our Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you have enough light to say that? Do you really believe that? I would argue that often we're not even close to where the Apostle Paul is. Because one of our favorite things to do is to talk about other people's sins and other people's flaws for what purpose? To show our own righteousness. Our own goodness. Why would we ever take pleasure in looking and finding and discovering other people's blemishes if we didn't ourselves think that somehow we stood above. But the Apostle Paul didn't know a greater sinner than himself. It's because he had spiritual light. He lived with his thoughts. I'll never know a greater sinner than myself. Why? I'm not in your head. I don't get to know all your thoughts. I don't get to see all that you do. But I know my thoughts. I see all that I do. I don't see all that I do. I don't have perfect spiritual light. I need more light. There's more to see. Let's consider the misery of the glory thief. Where did it start? It started in the Garden of Eden. Did it not? What happened in Genesis chapter 3? What is going on? How did we get the type of world we have with sin everywhere in the world in the misery that it's in? Where did it start? Well, you remember in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So here's what's happening here. God is reminding Adam 
of his place in their relationship. I made the garden, God's saying. I gave it to you. You can eat of every tree in it. Yes, you have a sort of freedom, but you don't have an autonomous freedom. You don't get to do whatever you want. See, that's the point of the tree that they can't eat of. God's saying, Adam, you need to remember that I'm God. I'm the one to be glorified. And you are not. So what does Satan do? Satan essentially promises Eve a sort of triumphant autonomy and freedom and satisfaction and joy, a sort of glory for oneself that she doesn't have to give away to God. And Adam and Eve both fall for it. Listen to what the serpent, the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. What's he saying there? He's saying God has no authority over your life. He told you you will die, but you're really not accountable to him. That's that lie. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? Why did they hide? Because they knew they were accountable. Why did they sow fig leaves? They knew that they were not God in that moment. And God was God. But what did they want? That one rule means He's above me. And I don't want it. I don't like it. I want to be like God. That's what Satan promised. You can be like God. You can be in the place of taking His worship and His glory from Him. Now think of it. What happened? What's the result of man becoming glory thieves? Of wanting to be in the place of God. Well, you, you know what's happened, right? 1 John 3.12, speaking of Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. It was all about glory. My brother looks more glorious than me. I don't like it. I'll kill him. See, we might not kill each other, but we'll gossip about each other. We'll tear each other down. Why? Because we want glory for ourselves. That's why. It's ugly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We get some picturesque pictures of mankind glorying in and of themselves. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Acts 12.20 You guys remember how Herod dies? Acts 12.20, here's the account. 
Here's an example of a glory thief. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So they're groveling. They just want to be accepted by Herod. And so they come to Herod. And in verse 21 it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. He gave a speech. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, or he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So here we get a picture. Herod's got the power. He has people groveling in front of him. He gives a wonderful speech. A voice of a God and not a man. And rather him say, no, I'm not God. I'm just a man. Don't worship me. He took the glory for himself. And I, I don't know. I kept, I, I'm reading this. It says, he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Which means the worms might have started eating before he died. It's an ugly picture of man seeking his own glory. Do you, do you want to be rescued from your own pride? Do you want to be rescued from your own glory seeking? Have you ever thought of Christmas has a thrill of joy ever filled your heart? Because finally, you can be rescued from you. Well, the other example is in Isaiah 14. It actually gets worse. This text is often uh, believed by many scholars to be pointing to Satan. It's for sure being uh, targeted at the king of Babylon. But we get an example of someone in great pride. Um, and, and it's a taunt that the uh, people of Israel are giving to the king of Babylon. He says this in verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. This is Isaiah 14.11. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you. I want you to picture. I don't know if you guys ever saw that show Fear Factor where they put people in a coffin and then dump maggots in there and stuff like that. The Bible is talking about this far before Fear Factor. The king of Babylon, your bed is maggots. All your pomp, all your harps, your glorious band, that announces your coming, it went down to Sheol. Your bed is maggots. And worms are your covers. 
a, that's a picture-esque picture, is it not? That's a vivid picture. Maggots are your bed. Worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I'll set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. This is the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. All the kings of the nation shall lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from the grave. Like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial because you have destroyed the land and you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. It doesn't turn out so good for the king of Babylon. What did he do? He ruined his land and he killed his people. Now get, you have to believe this. In your pride and your arrogance and in your glory seeking and in my glory seeking, do you realize that you'll run over the people you love most? You will hurt them. Your spouse, your children, your friends, your church members. As you let self-glory live inside you, and it becomes your idolatrous passion, you'll be like this. It's ugly. Think maggots and worms. That's the picture the Lord gives us of man taking pride unto himself. This man, like us so often, was selfish, full of pride and unbelief. What does God call Christians to, though? Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Just think of that. What's harmony? Christians are called to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now get this. Never be wise in your own sight. Never. Never be wise in your own sight. Clear New Testament command. How often are you smarter? Do you have it figured out like others don't have it figured directly against the command God gives us. Proverbs 3, 7, that's what Paul was thinking of. Be, be not wise in your own sight. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So here's the question. Do you need things to go your way? Do you need control? 
Do you need to be appreciated? Do you need the credit? Do you need the attention? Do you need to be noticed? Do you need to be right? Do you need, do you need to compare yourselves to others to feel better about yourselves? In other words, do you need the glory? If so, you will be discontented and you'll never be satisfied in yourself. When are you ever actually going to be happy with meditating on the glory that is to be yourself? Really? You see how sin deceives us? This, this world is lies to us. Everything about this world is upside down and inside out. The world says glory in yourself. You be you. Football players running off the field saying, I am him. I am him. That's a miserable person. That's a miserable life. And that is a miserable person. And this is a depressing point, which is the point. See, you will not rejoice in the good news of the coming of the Savior if you don't see how you need to be rescued from your own pride. I just want you to think of it this way. At your funeral, what bet, what, what's a better thing someone can say about you but that you fell on your knees and you were humbled and you were changed and you didn't have to have your way and you didn't have to always be right, but your life was marked as dying to self and glorying in Christ alone. Isn't that what we all want at our funeral? That they would say, this person was once all about themselves. I always thought they were right. But God destroyed them in Christ. Jesus' death became their death. They finally fell on their knees in this beautiful creation created by the Spirit of God and the love of Christ burst forth. If I died today, I don't know that anyone's saying all that. That's what I would want them to say. That's what I would want them to say. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt His worth. I love this line. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. It doesn't have to be like this anymore. That is the glory. A new morn has broke since Christ came. A thrill of hope can shoot through our hearts even as we look in and admit the ugliness we see inside we need not despair you have a savior to forgive you for those sins and you have a savior that has promised to give you his spirit and to help you 
die to yourself and live on to him. So let's look at point three. Rejoice in the peace that Christ brings. All right, John 1.14. We just read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. And when He shows up, He's full of grace and full of truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. What does John want to say? As soon as He points to the glory, He says He's better than me. So what was John like? Did John go, just sulk around and say, yeah, my cousin's better than I am. He gets all the attention now. I used to baptize hundreds. He's baptizing thousands. Is that, how, is that the account of John? In John 3.28, here's what he says. You yourselves bear me witness. He wants us to be on the record that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent forth before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. John gets to the pinnacle of joy when he thinks of the thought, all's I am is a friend of the bridegroom, but I have the privilege to hear the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my joy is complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Such a beautiful picture. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.14 as we close here. 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul puts it so clearly, this picture. So why was Jesus born? We know he was born to die, right? That was his purpose. Christmas is all about Easter. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, he's saying because we believe this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. He doesn't say here so that your sins can be forgiven. He says that in other places. Here he says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus came to rescue you from living for yourself and for your own glory. And praise God, because we're never more miserable than when we're living for our own glory. Isn't it a glorious truth that the penalty is paid for all of our ugly pride and selfishness and unbelief. All the things we do that are just selfish, it's paid for. 
But he also, in his grace, says, you don't have to stay that way, but I'll conform you into the image of Christ who lived the most selfish, selfless life of anyone we've ever known, though he deserves more glory than anyone who's ever been. Here's how Paul put it. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, if you want to compare your life to my life, as far as human righteousness, let's go. He's almost cocky with the way he says it. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. That means poop. That's what He means. It's like a swear word. I count it all excrement. That which I used to glory in, which I used to strut around about and think, why? Because he saw the glory of Christ. That's why. And one day, he wants that resurrection. Where he'll get that same glorified body. Not because of anything he did, but all because of what Christ has done for him. So hear the angels' voices. Glory to God in the highest. Repent of all self-glory. Hate it. When you see it in your life, loathe it. Don't justify it. Don't make room for it. And finally, rejoice in the peace that Christ brings. This is where, what does Piper say? There's no mirrors in heaven. Right? Heaven's going to be the most glorious place. Why? Because our eyes are going to be fixed on the glory of God. And we're not going to be concerned about ourselves and what everyone thinks about us. That's what makes us miserable. No mirrors in heaven. We get to behold His glory. And when we behold His glory, John tells us in 1 John 3, then we will be like Him as we see Him as He really is.